This morning's reading is in Ruth, in chapter 2 and verses 1 to 23. That's Ruth, chapter 2, verses 1 to 23, and the reading will also be on the, uh, the overheads. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, and Naomi said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favour. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of the harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and she remained here for, from the morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in any other field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about you and have done uh, have what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband how you have left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I did not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, and dip in the wine and vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to the town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. 
Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she'd been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth, the Moabite, said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all the grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvests were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. Uh, good morning again, and particularly if this is your first time visiting or you weren't here last week, you may be wondering why I look a little bit taller than your usual senior pastor, Scott. Uh, my name's James, as you heard earlier, and I'm one of the staff workers who works with evangelical students, and it's a privilege and a pleasure to be here today with you this morning. Uh, last week we looked at Colossians, and today we're going to be looking at the first of a two-part series on Ruth. We're not going to be able to cover the whole book, but hopefully we can spend a little bit of time uh, seeing some of the key features of the good news in this old ancient story from the Old Testament. Um, thank you for those of you who uh, did pray last week for our commencement camp. Uh, we usually go away at the start of the year with the university students to help them think about what it means to live with Jesus as king on campus. And uh, in God's kindness, we had 100 students, over 100 students, uh, come away for three days to think about these things. Uh, your own Bianca Venna did a great job of emceeing that, uh, and we were really excited about the 45 new first-year students who are really excited to join us on campus and be Jesus' ambassadors in the university space. So uh, please keep praying for us. Uh, please keep encouraging university students you do know to get involved with ES. Uh, it's a life-changing experience for many university students as they come out of high school and begin to think about what it means for them to live uh, as Christians, as adults. So uh, please keep praying for us. Uh, please keep encouraging people to get involved. Uh, but I'm going to pray now as we come to God's word uh, from Ruth chapter 2. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is good news. Uh, and today, as we come to Ruth, there is good news for all of us. Uh, news about how you take those who are empty and you fill them up with good things. Father, many of us may be feeling tired and weary. Uh, many of us may be feeling like you've been harsh towards us and that our lives are empty in some sense. But we thank you that in Jesus, our cup overflows. You have filled us up with your love. And Father, we pray that as we read through Ruth this morning, that we might see your goodness displayed then and now, and most primarily in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for his sake we pray. Amen. I want to ask you this morning, uh, what is it that you are searching for in life? Uh, is it success? Uh, are you searching for meaning in life? Are you searching for that special someone? Are you searching for a new job as part of what's called the Great Resignation, where uh, people have grown tired of their old jobs during COVID and they're seeking better and improved employment opportunities? Are you searching for the best location to enjoy your next holidays, hopefully now that the borders are opening? Are you searching for the perfect block of land to build your dream home in the hills? 
For many of us, we've become pretty lazy when it comes to searching for things. And we don't bother asking other people to help us find things because now we have our magical genie, Google. Uh, Google and Siri and Alexa and all those other digital assistant friends can do all the searching for us while offering us nice curated product placements and ads alongside our search results in 0.59 seconds. But some things in life cannot be found in Google. And to search for them, we need something more powerful than the latest smartphone. As I said earlier, over the next two weeks, we're going to be taking a short break from the Revelation series, and we're going to spend two weeks looking at the middle two chapters of the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. We're not going to have time to look at all four of those chapters. So before we dive into Ruth chapter 2, I'm going to give you a brief summary of what's already happened in Ruth chapter 1. The book of Ruth starts off with a woman named Naomi, who lives in Israel with her family, and she heads off to a place called Moab. Now, they don't go to Moab for a holiday, but because their town back in Israel, Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread, is in the middle of a famine. That's right, the town which is literally named Baker's Delight has run out of bread. This would be like one of your famous Adelaide bakeries running out of pies and cakes. And so Naomi and her husband get, and her two sons pack up the house, call the removalists, and they move to the nearby country of Moab to find food. While they're there, their two sons meet two lovely local Moabite girls and marry them, a woman named Orpah and a woman named Ruth. It all seems to be going fairly well until tragedy strikes and Naomi's husband dies. Her, his name is Elimelech, which means God is my king. Doesn't seem like God's in control of things now. And ten years later, her two sons, Marlon and Kilion, they also die. And Naomi's now left in a foreign country with two foreign daughters-in-law, no husband and no sons. It's pretty sad. And then Naomi hears that things have changed back in Israel, her homeland. Bethlehem has got food again. There's bread back in Baker's Delight. And so she packs up the house again and she prepares to leave Moab and go back to Israel. And as she's about to leave, she tells her two daughters-in-law, go back, be with your family, be amongst your own people. See if you can find a husband from amongst the other Moabites. There's no need to follow me anymore back to Israel. And so Orpah does the sensible thing. She kisses Naomi goodbye and she moves back in with her own parents again. But Ruth does something different. She clings to Naomi and she says, I'm not going back to Moab. Where you go, I will go. And your people will become my people. And your God will become my God. And only death will separate the two of us from now on. And so Ruth and Naomi, they move back to Israel, to Bethlehem. And as they enter, the people in the town look at a distance and they see this woman and they barely recognize Naomi anymore because she's been through so much hardship. And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter, because God has been making my life very, very bitter. And so the story of chapter 1 ends on this sour note, just as the harvest season is about to begin. And in today's chapter of Ruth, chapter 2, it's all about searches. It's about the search for a number of important things in life for them and the search for important things that we also search for today as well. So let's look into it and look at each of them one by one. The first thing we're going to look for and search for in this story is food. Now, I don't know about you, but I love searching for food. Have you ever had that moment when you're procrastinating from doing something really important and so you walk to the kitchen or the cupboard and you start rummaging through to see what you can find to eat? My wife tells me off for this when I'm getting hungry. But for many people, the search for food 
is not as trivial as my mid-afternoon munchies. For us, food is so abundant and easily accessible that some people can even choose to eat a paleo diet and avoid bread altogether if they want to, because we have so many other good alternatives. But in the ancient world, bread was not just one of the five food groups. It was essential to life. And the whole story so far has been revolving around the search for bread. Naomi and her family left Bethlehem, the house of bread, during a famine to go and find bread in Moab. But then after her men have died, she hears that there's bread back in Israel. And so now she moves, this time with Ruth, to find bread in Israel. There's so much movement, people actually changing nationalities, entire families being uprooted to chase after bread. But look at what Boaz says in verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. Boaz tells Ruth that the wanderings of Ruth and Naomi are over. They don't need to keep moving from place to place to find food anymore, to find sustenance. He tells Ruth in these verses to stay because there's no need to keep on searching. She has found all the food she needs in the field of Boaz. And later on in verse 14 it says, At mealtime Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. Ruth and Naomi are satisfied. It says here that Ruth eats all that she wants. She doesn't need to keep searching or begging for seconds or to look elsewhere for dessert. Boaz has provided everything that she needs. Look at verse 18. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Ruth has eaten enough and Boaz has provided food and sustenance for her, but he doesn't just fill up her plate. He piles it on until her plate is now overflowing. Look at verse 14 onwards again. She ate all that she wanted and had some left over. And as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then th she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to a, an ephah. That's about 13.2 kilograms. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she'd eaten enough. Ruth eats enough to satisfy her hunger, but then she brings home 13 kilos of barley to her mother-in-law, Naomi. There is so much food in the cupboard now. Ruth goes out searching, looking for food, and what does she find? She finds Boaz, who gives her three things. He puts an end to the search for her food and sustenance. He satisfies her need for food with bread. And he doesn't just satisfy her needs, but he gives her more and more in abundance, more than she needs. And over 1,000 years later, another man from Bethlehem did exactly the same thing. His name was Jesus. In John chapter 6, Jesus is being followed by a great crowd of people, and he miraculously feeds them with five small barley loaves, barley loaves and two fish. And Jesus doesn't just feed them with a tiny morsel of bread. He satisfies them so that they eat as much as they wanted. It says, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated 
as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they gathered up all enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who'd eaten. Jesus then goes on to declare, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is the bread from Bethlehem. He doesn't just give out the food that gives us life. He is our bread of life. And in Jesus, our never-ending search for life has come to an end. From this time, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus asked the twelve, you do not want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus has echoes of this story, doesn't he? Just like Orpah, Naomi's other daughter-in-law, turned back to her Moabite life at the end of chapter 1, so too some of the crowds in Jesus' time turned back and they no longer stuck with him. But the 12 disciples stick with Jesus because they realise that there is no other place to go. Because their search for real life, eternal life, has come to an end when they found Jesus. Jesus puts an end to your never-ending search for real food which will give you eternal life. Jesus satisfies our need for food with bread from heaven, with himself. And he doesn't just satisfy your needs, but he abundantly gives you more and more than you ever hoped to ask for. You see, Jesus is not an accountant. Accountants never want to waste anything. Every dollar has to have its place. If you only need $50 for something, they will budget $50 for something. You only spend what the minimal required amount is. But Jesus is not an accountant. Jesus is super abundant. He is not stingy. He gives leftovers in abundance. When I was growing up, my parents would tell me not to waste my food because there were starving children in other parts of the world who would love to eat what I was being served by my mum. Uh, more than once I offered to package it up and post it off to them, but my mum refused. Uh, my wife, Jane, is originally from Hong Kong, and her parents would say, don't waste any grain of rice in your bowl because the number of grains of rice you leave in your bowl, that's the number of pimples your future husband will have. <laughs> I don't think she wasted any of her rice. But Jesus is not like Western culture or Asian cultures when it comes to being resourceful. Jesus is more like a big Greek family who just pile on the food on your plate and then send you home with 12 boxes of leftovers. When I was at university, my flatmate was dating a girl from a Greek family, and she was one of nine children. And every time he went to her place for dinner, he would come home with boxes and boxes and boxes of leftover food for us to enjoy. And that is what God is like. God isn't just meeting your needs. He is over-the-top abundant and generous in filling up your plate until it overflows. Because God will not let anything or anyone stop him from pouring out his loving provision on you. Look at what it says in the New Testament about God's generous love towards us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The answer is no, none of these things will. Do you see that nothing there can stop God's love? Even famines like the famine that Naomi and Ruth faced, even that cannot separate them or us from the love of Christ. 
And so how do you view God in your own life? Is God some kind of stingy Scrooge up there in heaven, only just giving you enough? Is God treating you mean to keep you keen? Do you look at your own life circumstances like Naomi did, and do you feel bitter, like God has been harsh towards you? God provides for us. He richly and he generously and over the top provides for you. And when you come to Jesus, your search for the things you need in life comes to an end. Because where else could you possibly go when Jesus alone has the words of eternal life? The second thing that people are searching for in this story is law and order. Now, I don't mean they're searching for the TV show Law and Order. Uh, But in this story, which was originally written for Jewish people living in the Old Testament times, this story brings up all sorts of reminders about the law that Moses was given beforehand. You see, one of the first problems in this story is that the law, God's law, prohibited anyone from Moab from being included in Israel's blessings. Look with me on the slide behind me on Deuteronomy 23. In the law it says, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pithor and Aram Naharim to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. Wow, these are harsh words, aren't they? God is saying that the Israelites can never, ever be friends with the Moabites as long as they live. What is with that? Well, the key to understanding this law is right there in verse 4 on the screen. Because the Moabites did not come and meet the Israelites with bread. Do you see this bread theme coming up again? Or water when they came out of Egypt in the Exodus. You see, the Moabites were descended from Lot, Abraham's nephew. And Abraham was the father of Israel, the nation. And so in a way, the Moabites were cousins or distant relatives of the Israelites. And how should families treat one another? Well, they should care for each other, right? They should help one another out when they're in a hard time. And so as the Israelites escaped from slavery in Egypt and they're going out into the desert, they should have expected their distant cousins, the Moabites, to help them. But instead, what did the Moabites do? They hired an evil prophet named Balaam, who had a weird encounter with a talking donkey, to go and curse the Israelites and to harm them. And so Israel's distant relatives, the Moabites, had sought to harm them. And God had promised Abraham that anyone who cursed Abraham would be cursed back in return. And so that is why Moab as a nation was banned and cut off from the blessings of Israel. But even worse than this, romantic relationships with the Moabites had led Israel away from worshipping the one true living God. Look with me at Numbers 25 on the screen. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual morality with the Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Time and time again, Moab was bad, bad news for Israel. They cursed them and were hostile to them. And even when they were friendly to them, they turned Israel away from worshipping Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so if you're an Old Testament Jewish person and you know this bad blood, this bad history between Israel and Moab, 
and you're reading this story about a Moabite woman who comes into Israel, what do you think the law would ask you to do? It would seem like Boaz and Naomi should kick Ruth out and send her packing. Tell her to go back to where she came from. If you want to follow the letter of the law, that's what it seems to be saying, right? Send her back home. But the problem is that there was another law. A law about caring for the vulnerable, especially the foreigner and the widow. Look with me at Leviticus 19 verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So who is Ruth? Yes, on the one hand, she's one of those awful Moabite women, but she's also a poor person and a foreigner who Israel is supposed to care for. And so what does Boaz do? How does he seek to faithfully keep the laws of God? Well, Boaz knows that the law is not just about keeping rules. The law of God, the law given to Moses, is God describing and instructing his people how to love. The whole law of the Old Testament, Jesus says, can be summed up as being about loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbour as yourself. Love pointed upwards and love pointed outwards. And Boaz understands this and he chooses to keep the law by showing love to Ruth and Naomi. You see, he doesn't just do the bare minimum of what the law requires. So many of us, we want to know what's the bare minimum that God requires from me because then I, then I can do that, I can tick that off my list and then I'm done and I can get on with living my life my way. But God wants us to love. The law is the very minimum. But we as Christians, if we actually understand this, we should be aiming for the maximum. Can you imagine if I went home to my wife today and I lazily asked her, Jane, what's the bare minimum that I need to do this afternoon to keep you happy? I'd probably get turfed out on the front doorstep. Because that's not a relationship of love, is it? And so Boaz goes above and beyond the bare minimum legal requirements of the law. He doesn't just allow Ruth to gather the leftover food, which is what the law required. In verse 16, he instructs his workers and he says, even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Boaz goes out and starts intentionally creating extra leftover food for her to pick up so she is abundantly provided for. Because the law was always about love. And while Ruth could and should expect the very bare minimum, Boaz blesses her with more than she's entitled to under the law in a great act of love and grace. And 1,000 years later, another foreign woman in great need came to a man from Bethlehem and she asked him for help. But there was a legal problem. It says in Mark chapter 7, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. That's outside of Israel. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the little children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. This foreign woman, just like Ruth, recognises that, as Jesus said, she has no right, it's not right for her to benefit from Israel's blessings. 
Jesus says that the blessings that he's come to bring rightly firstly belong to Israel, God's chosen people. And this woman recognises her place as an outsider, as someone outside of God's law and outside of God's blessings. And Jesus has compassion on her in her humble pleading. And he shows love towards her. Even though, as verse 27 says, it is not technically right, it's not in keeping with the letter of the law for him to be bringing blessings to non-Jewish people. What Jesus knows is that the purpose of the law is to show us love. And in his love, Jesus fulfills the law. Just like Boaz, Jesus goes above and beyond the minimum legal requirement and he brings life and restoration to this foreign woman and to her daughter. But what about you? Are you like the Pharisees in Jesus' time who ask, who is my neighbour, so they could delineate and minimise the smallest number of people that they have to care for? Or will you follow the example of Jesus, the good Samaritan, the good foreigner who loves those who are different, who loves expansively and widely? The third thing Ruth is searching for in this story is refuge. In verse 12, after Boaz hears about all that Ruth has done for Naomi, he says, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz recognises that Ruth has come not primarily to him, but to Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, looking for refuge and protection. But the question is, what does Ruth need protecting from? Isn't she a strong, independent young woman? We see hints of it in the story. In verse 9, Boaz tells Ruth, Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. Now, that just seems like common decency, not to touch the women. And in fact, one commentator says that Boaz is hereby instituting the first anti-sexual harassment policy in the workplace recorded in the Bible. Now, that may be the case, but Naomi is also worried for her daughter-in-law. In verse 22, she says, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. Why is this the case? We need to consider the context of the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth opens with these words, in the days when the judges ruled. The context for this entire story of Ruth is the previous book in the Bible, the book of Judges. And if you read the book of Judges, it is a very dark time. And it stands in very stark contrast to the book of Ruth. You see, in Ruth, you see this noble man called Boaz protecting Ruth and making sure that no one harms her, that no one takes advantage of her, especially as a vulnerable widow who comes from another country. But if you read the final few chapters of Judges, you see almost the exact opposite of this story, in a story of pure evil. In Judges chapter 19, there's another boy meets girl story. A Levite, one of God's people, meets a girl from Bethlehem. It's the same town that Boaz and Ruth are in. And this Bethlehem girl actually cheats on her husband, and so she runs off back to her parents. They make up, and they leave the parents' place to head back to their home. And as they're heading off, it's getting pretty late. And so they stop for the night in a town called Gibeah. But no one there shows them any hospitality or kindness. No one offers them a place to sleep. And so they end up sleeping in the town square. Until an old man sees them as he walks past, and he welcomes them into his home to offer them some refuge and shelter. And as they head inside, a mob of really evil men surround the house. And they start banging on the door and it says in Judges chapter 19, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. 
I'll bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. And the even sadder ending to this story is that this woman is dead. These awful men have attacked her, and her gutless, evil husband sent her outside to protect himself rather than him going out to protect her. You can't read this story without it making you sick in your stomach. And the whole point of the book of Judges is that it is a time without a king. It's a lawless, wild west kind of scene with horrible chaos where everybody does whatever they feel like and whatever they think is right in their own mind. And Israelite society devolves into a dark and unimaginable evil. And so in the book of Judges, you have an Israelite man who will not even protect or shelter his own concubine from the attacks of other men. And then in contrast, you have the book of Ruth, where you have a man who will stand up and protect a woman he barely knows, who's not even a fellow Israelite, and he makes provisions to protect her and to shelter her and to make sure that she is safe. In a time when people just did whatever they wanted, there was no place that you could rely on for protection or shelter. In these days, it wasn't a nice, happy family story. No one had your back. Except in this story, we see someone who does have Ruth's back, even though she's a foreigner. Someone who ensures that she's protected from danger. And 1,000 years later, another man from Bethlehem showed us that he too offers us the protection and shelter of God himself. Another man who is so determined to protect you from danger that he put himself in harm's way. As Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he rescued us from the danger of death. And he calls himself the good shepherd who lays down his life to protect his sheep. And we'll briefly look at the next search. And that's the search for belonging in verse 5. Boaz asks, he says to the young man who's in charge of the reapers, whose woman, young woman is this? Ruth is seen as someone who does not belong anywhere. They're trying to work out who is she, where does she come from, where does she fit into the nation of Israel. She's left her homeland, but she's not yet one of us. But only a couple of verses later, Boaz goes from asking, does Ruth belong here, to saying, now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. He calls her my daughter. She's now been adopted as part of the Israelite family, even though she doesn't naturally belong. She's been grafted in. And it's not because Ruth has done something amazing to deserve this. She hasn't worked hard and got a visa or a permanent residency. She didn't represent Israel at the Olympic Games. She has been adopted into Israel's community purely because of Boaz's kindness and grace. She says in verse 10, why have I found favour in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Now, the original Hebrew literally says, Why have I found favour in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am an unnoticeable one? There is nothing noticeable or attractive about Ruth in and of herself at this stage. Boaz chooses to bring her into the family of Israel out of kindness, undeserved kindness. 
And notice how Boaz describes her in verse 11. He says, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. This idea of leaving your father and mother and your native land and going to a people that you did not know before is a direct allusion to the founding forefather of the Israelite nation, Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abraham, it should appear on the screen, uh, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Here, Ruth is imitating Abraham and now gets adopted as one of Abraham's people. But the final and probably the most significant search in this story is the search for love. And when I talk about the search for love, uh, many of us might think about reality TV shows like The Bachelorette. Uh, you see, for most of our world, uh, searching for love is about finding someone with whom we have chemistry, uh, or someone who fulfills my longings or my desires, someone who completes me. Because love in modern society is primarily about what you feel. And so love has been reduced to a feeling. But in Ruth, we see that love is far richer and far better than just a feeling. Look at verse 2. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone who is really handsome and compatible with my personality and makes me feel really good. No, that's not what it says. It actually says, With anyone in whose eyes I find favour. Love here is shown as kindness or favour. Love is doing the right thing by someone no matter what. No matter whether they deserve it, no matter how they've treated you. It is seeking their best interest. And so Ruth says later to Boaz, oh sorry, later on, uh, she bows down with her face to the ground and she asks, why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Because in response to all the kind things that he has done for her, all the ways he's benefited and done good by her, by giving her food, protecting her, fulfilling his obligations under the law, he's blessed her and brought her in to belong. Because his love is not primarily a feeling. Boaz's love is an action. It is a commitment to act in the best interest of Ruth and to act in her best interest regardless of how he feels towards her, regardless of the cost and regardless of their surrounding circumstances. And this love that Boaz shows is a reflection of the love that God has for us. Now look with me at verse 20. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Now the big question in verse 20 is, who is the he in verse 20 who has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead? Is it Boaz who's showing the kindness, or is it talking about God showing kindness? It could be either, and I won't bore you with all the details, but grammatically, in the original Hebrew Bible, it's most likely talking about God. God has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. But the word translated kindness is a very important Old Testament word. It's a word which elsewhere in the Bible is often translated as steadfast love, or loving kindness, or unfailing love. It's a word that describes God's loyal love, that loyalty he shows towards people as he loves them, not based on how he feels towards them on any particular day, but based on loyalty to his promises, his covenants, and his pre-existing commitments to them. And so that's why even though Naomi feels in her heart in chapter 1 like God has abandoned her, that's why she calls herself Mara, bitter, in chapter 2 we see that despite her feelings, God clearly hasn't forgotten her 
because God is the one behind everything that happens. He orchestrates things so that Ruth just happens to walk into Boaz's field at just the right time as Boaz comes to inspect his field. God is the one who provides for Naomi and for Ruth through Boaz. God is the one who spreads his wings of refuge and protection over them. God is the one whose commitment to love and to do the best for Naomi has not changed one bit since the opening of this story. And this love is so different and so much better than Hollywood romantic love, isn't it? It's a love that says, for better and for worse, in sickness and in health, I will stick by you and I will do what is good for you. It's that promise-based love that Ruth showed to Naomi in chapter 1 when she stuck by her mother-in-law. It's that promise-based love that Boaz shows to Ruth when he goes above and beyond what the law requires. And 1,000 years later, another man from Bethlehem showed God's loyal, committed love towards us as he died on the cross in our place. Jesus loved us by going above and beyond what was required. Jesus stuck by us even when we were his enemies. And so as Romans 8, chapter 8 tells us, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, God's love is so much richer and deeper and sturdier than anything this world has to offer you. And so if you're someone here today uh, who's checking out church, maybe you're not someone who's a follower of Jesus yet, and you're not sure where you stand with God, and you're still trying to work out if God is someone you can give your life to, look here at the kind of love that God displays towards people who don't belong. Look at how committed God is to being generous towards you and towards protecting you from danger. God is so committed to you that he gave his only son. As that famous Bible verse says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So very quickly, how should we respond? Well, firstly, we, we could be like Ruth. Uh, in verse 10, when Ruth encounters this generous, undeserved love and kindness, what does she do? She bows down in allegiance to Boaz. When God has shown us his amazing love, his kindness to those who are his enemies, our first response is to give him our honour and our allegiance. We also see Ruth humble herself. She recognises that she's not entitled to Boaz's kindness. In verse 13 she says, May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. She humbly recognises that she has no claims, no rights, no citizenship in Israel. Even the servants are better off than she is. She knows that she's a beggar collecting the scraps, literally. And yet she's been lavishly cared for. Is that how you see your relationship to God? As someone who had nothing, who brought nothing, and yet has been shown incredible kindness by a loving God? But interestingly, the main character in the whole book is not Ruth. Even though it's named Ruth, uh, there's some really interesting uh, ideas about why actually Naomi is the person who both starts the book and ends the book as a character. She's the one who actually starts chapter 2 and ends chapter 2. She's the bookends of the whole thing. And I think the reason we don't think Naomi is the main character is because, well, basically, she does nothing. In chapter 1, she complained. But in chapter 2, all she does is she lets Ruth go 
and then Ruth benefits from this whole story between Ruth and sorry, Naomi benefits from the story between Ruth and Boaz. And in some ways, isn't that the heart of the good news of Christianity? That to be truly blessed, you don't have to do anything in the story. Jesus does all the work. He does what we as helpless humans could not do. And we benefit from his story. We benefit from God's covenant and loyal love to his promises. And finally, we have the response of Boaz, a man who reflects God's kindness and love to others. And so if you're a Christian here today, how can you also be like Boaz and reflect that love to your neighbours, not just in the minimal way required, but in the maximal application of love? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you are a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Father, as we've looked at this beautiful story from Ruth, we have seen the beauty and extravagance of your love towards Ruth and Naomi and Boaz in the past. And we know that you are the same God today, the same God who brings us into your family so that we belong, the same God who provides for us and sustains us with the bread of life in Jesus, your son, so that we might truly live forever. You are the same God who shelters us and protects us from and gives us refuge from our enemies. You are the same God who shows us your laws and yet shows us them in love. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to recognise that we have nothing to give, nothing to offer you except our broken selves. Father, help us to be like Ruth and Naomi who recognise our place and yet benefit from your extravagant grace and love. Father, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't yet know the loving kindness of your son Jesus, that today they might see that you are someone who is not harsh towards us, that despite our circumstances and our feelings, we can know that you have shown us your love because you've given us your only son Jesus who died on the cross in our place to protect us. Father, we pray for those of us who do know you, help us to imitate your love to be thankful, to not become entitled, but to be thankful for what you've given us and to reflect that love to a world that needs to know it. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, the bread of life. Amen.